some yard work done around the house. They may do some spring cleaning, have a cookout, take a short trip, or just have an extra day to relax. This is a reason for many to look forward to this federal holiday. We may often look forward to this three-day weekend without reflecting much on why there is a three-day weekend to begin with. And we have a three-day weekend because of the many U.S. soldiers who have died in battle. These soldiers who have died to preserve our freedom, including our freedom to meet together as a religious institute. And so what do you know about Memorial Day? We're going to be uh, testing that here uh, in a minute here. I've got 10 Memorial Day trivia questions for you all. And I just want you to blurt out an answer when you hear uh, the question or, or more likely uh, your best guess because you're probably not going to know uh, many of these answers. The first question that I have is when did the first Memorial Day take place? So it was originally called Decoration Day. So, so when was the first Decoration Day? There, there, there were a couple, some, 1868, of course Cheryl would know, Cheryl knows her stuff, 1868, the first Memorial Day, or originally called Decoration Day, uh, what, what, what state was the birthplace of Memorial Day? Close, close, same, right region. New York. It was established in New York. When did Memorial Day become a floating federal holiday so that it would be on uh, the last Monday of every month rather than it used to be on May 30th? I'll give you a hint. Some of you guys were alive to witness this change. When was it? You don't know. Do you remember it? I'm changing it now. Any guesses? Very close. Uh, 1971, when they changed it from a floating uh, federal holiday uh, rather than it being on May 30th each year. Uh, so uh, each year they, they have uh, the National Memorial Day Parade. Uh, how many people participate in the National Memorial Day Parade? A bunch, yeah, uh, essentially. Uh, the number I got was over 10,000. Some people call that a bunch. Uh, so right on, Sylvia, a bunch of people uh, take part in the National Memorial Day Parade. How many people visit uh, the Arlington uh, National Cemetery around Memorial Day? A bunch. A bunch. How, how many? 20,000. So more than a bunch? Uh, yeah, uh, a lot more than a bunch. Uh, more than 135,000 people uh, visit the Arlington National Cemetery around Memorial Day each year. Raise your hand if you've uh, been to the Arlington uh, Cemetery there. Yeah, it is uh, quite a sight to behold, and I uh, would imagine it would be extra special around Memorial Day. So how many uh, Americans travel during Memorial Day weekend, including our uh, fellow congregants here at North Hills? How many people travel during Memorial Day weekend? Most of them. I love your numbers. Yeah. Uh, a lot more than a bunch. A lot more than a lot more than a bunch. More than 42 million people travel during Memorial Day weekend. Uh, how much money is spent on meat for Memorial Day weekend? How many of you guys are having a cookout and grilling some meat this weekend? A couple of you guys. How much meat, uh, mo how much money is spent on meat uh, for Memorial Day weekend? Any guesses? 20,000. 20, 
50 million. In the millions? Yeah, uh, a bunch. Uh, $1.6 billion spent on meat. Uh, I don't know how they determine if it's going to be uh, consumed in, during Memorial Day weekend or not, but however they figure this out, they, they figure $1.6 billion worth of meat is going to be consumed uh, on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I did not. Uh, there's a bunch in the freezer, though, uh, so we'll have to see if that works. Um, how many active day, uh, how many active duty service members are in the United States Armed Forces today? Approximately, uh, number I got, approximately 1.3 million people uh, serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And the last question that we have is how many American troops have died in battle? Troops, yeah. So according uh, to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, published uh, in America's Wars Report in May 2021, and that estimated a number of fallen troops who died in battle, uh, they measured from 1775 to 1991, so it's not uh, the most recent uh, number, but their number was uh, 651,031 troops have fallen um, in battle in the United States Army. Um, so I just want to take a moment and, and pray for those families who have lost a family member while serving in the military. Feel bow with me. Father, we love you. Father, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. Um, Father, due to sin, we live in a broken world. And part of that broken world means we live in a world full of wars and father uh, these men and women are fighting these wars and father I pray that you watch over all of these families who have lost a loved one in war and I just pray that you comfort them as they grieve this weekend and just fill them with your peace and your comfort that passes all of our understanding and father I just thank you for this blessing that we have because of their sacrifice, that we can come together freely and proclaim your good news here at North Hills. It's in Jesus' precious and holy and powerful name that we pray. Amen. So thank you. Uh, so thanks to those troops who have uh, fallen. We are able to discuss God's word freely in a public setting like this. And so today we have that immense privilege and honor it is to continue our series on the book of Romans, uh, one of the 66 books of the Bible. And, and we're taught we're going through this series on the book of Romans, and, and we've entitled it Romans, the foundation of our faith. As Paul, he wrote this letter uh, uh, to the church at Rome, and Paul, he went to go preach this gospel message to the church at Rome, but in the meantime, he would eventually find himself in, in Rome in chains, but in the meantime, he is going to write a letter that presented the gospel message, and that gospel message is the foundation of our faith. And so as he presents this gospel message to the church at Rome, this church that consists of both Jews and Gentiles, Last week, we covered Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 9 as well. 
We covered Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 29 last week. And Paul wrote this letter shortly after Jesus radicalized the Jewish faith. There would have been a lot of naysayers at the time of this writing, both of the Gentiles and the Jews. And these naysayers of this faith that Paul was presenting to the church at Rome would have come up with with a, a number of questions, questions such as, if this is all true, if everything that you're writing, about Paul is true, then has the word of God failed? And is God unjust by not saving all of the Jews? And these are questions that still persist today. People question whether or not the, the, the God, the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth, whether he is just or unjust in his dealings with mankind. P- people question and whether or not his plan had failed or not. And Paul took us back in the annals of history to answer these questions. And long story short, we see that no, God's plan has not failed. Where the true children of Abraham, they will be saved. Every single one of them. That was all part of God's plan. And no, God is not unjust. Instead, we see an outpouring of God's mercy and compassion on us as mankind as he offers that salvation to everyone. And all we have to do is accept that free gift of salvation. And so that's where we pick up, and we'll be uh, picking up in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30, after Paul addresses these two big objections to this faith, these two big questions in which he answers, no, that's not the case at all. No, God has not failed. His plan has not failed. And no, God is not unjust and is dealing with us and with the Jews. And so Paul continues in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And so here we see a contrast of two ways in which people strive for for salvation, which people strive to to be righteous in the eyes of God. We have the Gentiles on one hand, and and the Gentiles, again, is just anybody who is a Jew. So that's talking about you and I. The Old Testament uh, dealt uh, heavily revolved around the Israelites, around the Jews, but, but now this message opened up to everybody. And so we have the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, they have their way of a attaining righteousness, and we have the Jews who have their way of of attaining righteousness. And the Jews sought to earn a right relationship with God through obedience to the law. Or in other words, they they sought to be righteous by their works. If they could just perfectly fulfill the law and remain obedient to God, then they would be righteous in the eyes of God. It's simple. That, that is the truth. If you were to perfectly obey God, then you would be righteous. You would be righteous in the eyes of God. And this is the structure that the Jews abided by. The issue is that not a single Jew other than Jesus was able to remain completely obedient to God. And so they sought to earn a right relationship with God through their works, but they could not get there. They were fighting a losing battle. They'd take two steps forward, but at the same time, they take three steps back. It, it was a losing battle. We, we, we cannot earn 
righteousness by uh, our own works. And so that's how the Jews strived to be righteous, and they strived for it, but they could not attain it. On the other hand, we have the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not engage in this mindset of obtaining a right relationship with God through perfect obedience uh, in the law. With the arrival of Jesus, this offer of salvation and righteousness through the grace and love of God were extended to all people. And so the Gentiles simply submitted themselves upon the love of God and faith. They sought to be righteous by their faith, by their faith in a loving God who is offering this declaration of being righteous to all mankind. And all we need to do is we need to accept that declaration with our faith. William Barclay, he does a phenomenal job uh, contrasting uh, the two in his commentary on the book of Romans. William Barclay writes, quote, It was as if the Gentiles saw the cross and said, If God loves me like that, I can trust him with my life and with my soul. The Jews sought to put God in their debt. The Gentiles were content to be in God's debt. The Jews believed they could win salvation by doing things for God. The Gentiles were lost in amazement at what God had done for them. The Jews sought to find the way to God by works. The Gentiles came by the way of trust. And so we have this contrast, these two different modes that lead to righteousness. And they both can work. These are both um, um, modes that, that lead to righteousness. If you perfectly obey God, you will be righteous. And if you put your faith in God and his son Jesus, then you will be righteous. And the Jews, they put the pressure on themselves and the works and perfectly fulfilling the law and not a single Jew. And they were very, very serious about the law. The Jews during the time and ministry of Jesus, they were constantly button heads with Jesus because they weren't, they didn't view that Jesus was perfectly fulfilling this law that God wanted him to fulfill. So they took it very, very seriously, but not a single one of them could perfectly fulfill it. And so not a single one of them attained this idea, this concept of being righteous in the eyes of God through their works. But the Gentiles and this idea and Jesus opening this offer of salvation to all, they accepted it. They received this idea of being righteous through their faith. And so some people today have a lack of confidence or assurance in their salvation. They question if Jesus were to come back today, would I be saved? You know, I, I hear that, that theme through a lot of people, the, the insecurity of their salvation. And I think part of that doubt comes from a mentality that, that associates, associates with, with the Jews. And, and that's not the case at all. We, we are saved by the grace of God. And we accept that grace through a living faith in God. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself from the consequences of sin. And rather, God paid that price by laying his son Jesus down on the cross. And all we have to do is accept that grace, accept that free gift of salvation, accept being declared righteous in the eyes of God by our faith, a faith that is alive and well. 
And so I firmly believe that today you can have confidence in your salvation. As thank goodness, our salvation does not rest on our works, but it rests on the grace of God. And so here we, we, we see the, these two contrasts in how we attain righteousness. And so Paul continues in, in the second part of verse 32. He says, they, in regards to the Israelites, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul quotes a combination of Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. So we today, we are saved by God's grace as God sent his son uh, to, to die on the cross. And Christ serves as the cornerstone of our faith. You know, the cornerstone was traditionally the first stone that was laid on a structure uh, there on the corner. You guessed it. You're right. Uh, and as a stone was laid on the corner, all the other stones would be laid and relate to this corner stone. And then this cornerstone would, would, would then, it would have the weight of the rest of the structure on this stone. And so this cornerstone and, and how these built the, 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 these structures out of the, these stones, without this cornerstone, you, you take that cornerstone away and all of a sudden this foundation crumbles. And Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the central figure to God's plan of salvation. But Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith, also serves as a stumbling stone for many. This is because many have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And if they reject Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the chosen one of God, then their path to salvation becomes a path that leads towards condemnation. And so Jesus... For every single person, Jesus will either serve as the cornerstone to their salvation or Jesus will serve as a stumbling block or a stumbling stone that leads to their downfall. And that decision of whether Jesus serves as your cornerstone or your stumbling stone rests solely on your shoulders and whether or not you confess and believe that Jesus is the Lord. And these Jews, these Israelites, as Paul's expressing, these Israelites specifically who had rejected Jesus, they've taken this cornerstone, and this cornerstone has now become their stumbling stone, which leads them to shame, which leads them to condemnation. And so Paul continues in talking about the Israelites still in chapter 10, and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Paul continued to talk about the Jews. And we have to remember uh, this context in which Paul is talking about the Jews. Paul like, kind of shifted gears at, at the beginning of chapter 9 and, and dealing heavily with the Jews. And in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, what we read a couple weeks ago, Paul wrote that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That, that being the Israelites, as Paul himself was a Jew. And so Paul's heart was mourning for his Jewish brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. But you know, Paul writes these difficult words to hear for a Jew, not because he is enraged with them, not because he is so angry that they have rejected Christ as their Savior, but he's writing the, these words to, the, to these Israelites out of anguish, out of sorrow, out of mourning, out of a sincere heart's desire that they may be saved. But in this sincere desire, this earnest desire that they may be saved, Paul has to share a hard truth with these people. You know, sometimes that holds true today for us as well. Sometimes we need to share these hard truths with our loved ones. I feel this is something that our society is shifting further away from and, and, and expressing these hard truths to our loved ones. And, and we focus on what's easy, whatever makes you feel good at the moment. That's what we focus on. But sometimes your loved ones, your friends, your family, they need to hear the hard truth, not out of anger that you have for them, but out of anguish and out of sorrow, that, your, that is your heart desire that they may be saved. And so Paul informs the, these Jews, the, his fellow brothers and sisters, uh, through, through blood, through, through his family, that they have a zeal for God, that they are indeed very passionate about God. Nobody could mistake their passion for God. They, they, they were very, very passionate about God. But the issue is, is that it was a misguided passion. They sought to be righteous in the eyes of God through the law. Whereas Paul says in the meantime, they blinded themselves to the righteousness that God offers to us through his son, Jesus as the Jews and Gentiles, are, they're both seeking the same thing. They're both seeking to be righteous in the eyes of God. But the Jews fail to see that, that the law is not the means to righteousness. Rather, a belief in Christ is the means to righteousness. And so Paul is expressing this hard truth that, yes, indeed, you, you, you have a zeal for God, but the zeal, that this passion that you have for God, it is misguided, for you reject the righteousness of God. You reject the simple message that Jesus had come to proclaim. And so Paul continues along these same lines in verse 5, and Paul writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. And so uh, we'll remind here a bit, uh, a bit here that Paul is talking about here. Moses, uh, so Moses wrote about the righteousness that is based on the law. 
as we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the first five books of the law, if you were to perfectly fulfill these rules, then indeed you would attain righteousness. And this is the righteousness that Moses wrote about. Unfortunately, nobody was able to attain to that righteousness through this mode other than Jesus. But through Jesus, we can attain a righteousness that is based not on our works, but that is based on faith. And it is a very, very simple process. Really, both are, are very simple to understand. If you perfectly obey God, then you are righteous. If you put your faith in Christ Jesus, then you are righteous. There's really no misunderstanding these two modes. And that's what Paul is illustrating in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 10. He uses two different quotes from Deuteronomy 30. If we go back and read uh, Deuteronomy 30, uh, which we'll do here in a second here, we can better understand what Paul is saying here. Whereas if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is preparing the Jews to follow the leadership of Joshua as Moses is getting ready uh, to fall asleep in death. And so Moses... Uh, tells to these Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11, he says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And so Moses, he got done going through all of these commandments uh, that the Israelites were to uh, follow and obey. And at the end of going through all of these commandments, he says it's right there in front of you to obey. You don't have to go up to the heavens and seek someone to bring you the commandments. You don't have to go down into the abyss of the earth to seek these commandments. They're right in front of your face. There's no misunderstanding them. And so Paul, in, in Romans chapter 10, he uses, uh, he uses the, these quotes that, that Moses goes over to talk about this faith in Christ Jesus. You don't have to seek the heavens and seek someone to, to bring down this revelation. You don't have to go under the abyss of the earth to seek this information. It is right there in front of our eyes. It's right there for us to understand. It is so simple. If you put your faith in Christ Jesus then you are righteous. This concept is right there for us to comprehend and understand. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And so Paul here, this is uh, verse 9, one of the most well-known verses of the book of Romans. Paul says, because... And so because we, we can attain this righteousness through Christ, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then maybe you will be saved. <laughs> no, not at all. You will be saved. You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so there it is. There, there, there is the simple truth that Paul is illustrating to, to his audience and the church at Rome. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Zero questions asked. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. You will be saved. If you have a sincere belief that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is how we are declared righteous. And because of this, we can have confidence in our salvation. For it's not due to our works that we are saved, but it's through God's grace and we accept God's grace through our faith. And if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Say that, I will be saved. I will be saved. Zero questions asked. You will be saved if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. So last two verses that I will cover here, Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this offer of salvation, of being deemed righteous in the eyes of God for simply having a faith in his son, that offer is extended to all people. This is not a special reservation for the Jews only or for the Gentiles only. If you are white or black or rich or poor or Jew or Gentile, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. This is the good news. This is the good news that Paul so desperately wanted to share with the church at Rome. In my eyes, this, this is the second climax that we have seen in this letter. And in Romans chapter 6, I think we, we, we found our first climax of this letter was where Paul was building up in, into chapter 6. And he stated in verse 23 of chapter 6, he says, For the wages of sin is death. He's been talking about death all this time, or, or sin all this time, and sin is the main enemy in our life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I, I think that was the first climax of this letter. And then Paul, he, he digs into the trenches again, and, and he gets into the nitty-gritty and, and the details and talking about these differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. I think we see the second climax in, in Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this message of salvation is for all. This is news that needs to be splattered across our TVs, our radios, our podcasts, discussions, our homes. Our entire lives need to be screaming out this truth that if you confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is zero misunderstanding the simple message. This message is right there in front of us for us to comprehend and understand. 
If you have a faith in God and his son Jesus, then God declares you righteous and you will be saved from your sins. And so because of this good news that we have, I want you all to do two things for me this week. Number one, I want you to be confident in your salvation. That you can be confident that if Jesus were to come back today, that you will be saved. If you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe, and we're not talking about a measly belief that that doesn't really affect your life. Again, we're talking about a belief of faith that affects every aspect of your life. As if you firmly believe, if you firmly have faith that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And because of this, I think we can have confidence in our salvation that God views us as righteous children of God that will inherit the coming kingdom. So that's the first thing that I want you to do is to have confidence in your salvation because of this good news that Paul presents to us in Romans chapter 10. Second thing that I want you to do is that news is meant to be shared. News is meant to be spread to those around you. And this good news, this gospel message, it must be proclaimed. It must be shared with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, uh, with uh, people at school, with, with your bosses. Well, whatever the case may be, anybody that you come into contact with, they need to be aware that if they simply confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead, then they will be saved. So have confidence in your faith and share this message of salvation with someone this week. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this word that you have put on Paul's heart I thank you that we have access to these words thousands of years later. And Father, it's my prayer that each and every one of us here, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead. Father, we long for that day when we will inherit your coming kingdom and we will be saved once and from all, once and for all from the consequences of sin. We love you. We love your son. It's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.